It does, uh, as we get started this morning, there was some notes that were handed out at the beginning. If anyone did not receive those, it's just an opportunity to take notes on. If you'd raise your hand, uh, Deacon will come around to give that to you. I see Marsha, at least up here in the front, does not, not have one. So uh, thank you, Will, for that. Well, turn with me, if you would, this morning to the Gospel of John. We're going to be spending our time in chapter 9. Now, for those of you who I know remember from several weeks ago, uh, we've actually already spent a little bit of time in this chapter. Now, last time we focused on verses 1 through 3, and as a quick reminder, in this chapter, Jesus and some of his disciples have come across a man who was born blind, and he's begging at one of the gates to the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus' disciples asked him whose sin was responsible for this man's blindness. And a common belief at that time was that suffering, such as physical ailment, illness, was always a result of sin. So Jesus, though, pushing back on that assumption, he says that this man's blindness is not a result of a specific person's sin. And he says in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that's where we stopped last week. We, we worked through this idea that whatever brings God the most glory is the most loving to us. Now this morning, though, we are going to look at this narrative in its entirety. Now one of the things that I have increasingly enjoyed over the last several years is uh, photography. And to say that a very much amateur photographer, uh, if I would even call myself that. In particular, one of the things I enjoy taking pictures of is landscape. I really like landscape photography. I've also tried on multiple occasions, but to be clear, have failed miserably with astrophotography, which is trying to take pictures of stars. Uh, that one I have found, although I desire to be able to take a really beautiful picture of stars, I have failed at it miserably. Now, my cameras, the ones that I have, they only take pictures digitally, which is very different from how pictures used to be taken. Right? I remember as a child that whenever we would go somewhere as a family for sightseeing, my dad was that dad who I have become, who always had this massive camera with him to take pictures, right? And we know they always took pictures on film, and I'm sure at least for some of us in here, we can remember those days that when you used up all the film, you had to rewind it, right? And rewind it until you got it within that little canister, and once you had it all rewind, you'd take it out, but as you were taking pictures, you actually had no idea exactly how those pictures came out. Right? You'd make the adjustments, everything in the camera, the best way you could. you take the picture, but you wouldn't actually see how well you did until it was developed. Now, most of us probably went to a store. We send it off for the film to be developed, and sometime weeks later, we would get our negatives back, and we'd get some developed pictures. Now, when they develop pictures, right, pictures are developed by exposing the film. Once they get the film, they expose that film. Once they develop it, they expose the film to light. And when that light shines through, that's when the picture is actually made, that we get and that we hang up or we send to people. Now, only when that film is exposed to light do you really find out how your pictures turned out. Well, in chapter 8 of John, Jesus made the statement that he is the light of the world. 
And we're going to see in chapter 9 that he'll make this statement again, and we will get to see what happens. What happens when the hearts of men, just like camera film, are exposed to the light? So with that in mind, we're going to look at the first seven verses of John chapter 9. And the big idea, the big takeaway, very simply, that we want to remember from this morning is Jesus is the light that brings sight. Jesus is the light that brings sight. And in the first seven verses, we're going to see that Jesus' light brings sight to the blind. Now, the flow of the narrative from John chapter 7 through 10 is no accident. Not only do these events happen chronologically, but they also serve to make a point in the mind of the gospel writer. If you remember from John 8, Jesus has made some bold claims, and he's actually made some very clear statements to the crowds and the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. Now, as I mentioned, one of those that he says in John chapter 8 is he makes this proclamation that he is the light of the world. That's not the only statement that he makes. He also claimed that those who follow him do not walk in darkness but have the light of life. He claimed that spiritually, for every single person, either your father is God or it is Satan. That the only way to be free from the bondage of sin and from Satan as your father is for the son to set you free. Jesus claimed that he could say these things, he could make these statements because he is the I am, the one who has existed before time, even since before Abraham. And after he made these claims in chapter 8, at the very end, that chapter closes with the crowd picking up stones to kill him. They, They understood what he was saying. They understood what he was doing. He was claiming to be God, and they wanted to kill him for it. Now, obviously that doesn't happen because it wasn't his time, but with that background in mind, with chapter 8 in mind, then we come to chapter 9, and in chapter 9, what we have is a living illustration of all that Christ has been saying. All that Christ has been claiming, and we have a living illustration in this narrative. So let's read. I'm going to read. You can follow along with me in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. When these first seven verses, we have this description of the miracle that Jesus performed with this blind man. And the details are clear. I think they're easy for all of us to understand. Jesus makes mud with his spit. He puts that mud on this man's eyes. He tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man obeys. He goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. Miraculously, God has, Jesus has healed him of his blindness. Now, to help us wrap our minds around the importance of this miracle, at this point in John's gospel, there's two things that we need to understand to help us. First of all, 
There is no narrative in the Old Testament where God heals a blind person. Now, this blind man, and this is fascinating, this blind man who's been healed, we're going to see in verse 32, he tells the Pharisees, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And to be honest, as I was studying this, and I read this passage, and I read some statements and commentaries, and I initially thought, well, wait a minute. How can that be true? There are lots of miracles. There's a number of miracles that are in the Old Testament. Surely there's a healing of at least one blind person. I mean, in the Old Testament, we have everything from an axe head floating in the water, people being raised from the dead, the sun standing still in the sky during a battle, just to name a few. But there's not a single narrative in the Old Testament in which a blind person receives their sight. What this man says later in this narrative is true. There's not one single instance of a blind person being healed in the Old Testament. I think that begs the question, why would that be true? Why would that be the case? Why, would, why is it that the first time in the entire Bible that we have someone being healed of their physical blindness is in the New Testament, and it's by Jesus? Well, this is the case because God actually communicated in the Old Testament that giving sight to the blind is reserved for the realm of God and for his Messiah. We're just going to look at a few examples from the Old Testament one from the new. So for example, if you want to write these down, I'm going to read them. You can look at them later if you'd like to. For example, in Psalm 146, verse 8, we read, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Now this is in a long list of things in that psalm, things that the Lord does that a prince or a ruler of man cannot do. Or we actually have several verses in Isaiah that give this indication as well. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18 says, In that day, and these are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Or in Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And in 42, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And the Jews in Jesus' day, to be clear, they understood this connection. And we can see this from the narrative that I actually read before the offering. We'll read it here again. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. We saw the disciples of John. John's in prison. He's having some doubts about Christ, and he sends his disciples to say, are you the one, or should we wait for another? And listen to what Jesus says. He tells John's disciples in verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. This is the evidence for how he is the Messiah that he wants John to hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have, the poor have good news preached to them. Now notice that when asked if Jesus was the Messiah, the, the first sign that Jesus references is the blind receiving their sight. And in doing so, Jesus is actually referencing those passages from Isaiah that we just read. 
So given the fact that the reason that John wrote this gospel was to show that Jesus is the Messiah, this miracle is a clear connection in his mind and that his readers would have understood. So one reason this physical miracle has such significance in the life of Christ is because it's that clear connection with the Old Testament that is screaming that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's one thing we need to understand as we get into this narrative. The other is that in the minds of the Pharisees, in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus, when he performed this miracle, they thought he was sinning because we learn later in verse 14 that this happened on the Sabbath. In verse 14 John of John 9, John inserts it, says, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now why is that important for us to understand? Because we're going to see this, this man who's just been healed, he's going to be taken before the Pharisees. And as I said, the Pharisees are going to believe that he sinned. And to be honest with you, every time I think about it, it's actually quite astounding to me that a group of people could consider the healing of an individual to be sin, not because of the miracle itself, but because the day on which the miracle was performed. So the question is why? Why would they have considered this a sin? Well, if you remember, right, in the Old Testament, God said, honor the Sabbath day and make it holy. And he made it clear not to work on the Sabbath. Those are the commands that God gives in the Old Testament. Well, over the years, the Pharisees had taken those and interpreted them and added, well, this is what we say it means not to work. And they put lots of law and restrictions on what they considered to be work on the Sabbath. So here's how they would have considered Jesus sinning in a few ways. First of all, the Pharisees believed that healing itself was forbidden on the Sabbath, except for cases where life itself was in danger. Obviously, that wouldn't have applied here. He had been born blind, so his life was not in danger. Second, one of the categories of work that they had said was forbidden on the Sabbath was kneading. Like when you think of kneading dough or bread. Well, the process that Jesus used to make mud out of his own spit could have been considered kneading by these Pharisees. And lastly, some of them believed that anointing of the eyes was against God's law on the Sabbath. So they would have considered Jesus placing the mud on this man's eyes as anointing them, and they would have considered that sin as well. So with those things in mind, before then we, we have that in the background to help us understand it, but before we jump into the bulk of this narrative, which is actually verses 8 through 34, we need to look at one verse in particular before we move on just to make sure that we understand it. And that is verse 4. So I'm going to read verse 4 again. Verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. What does Jesus mean when he says this? What is he trying to communicate? Well, the night and the day Jesus is referring to here is the period of human life. And in verse 5, he makes it clear that he is referring to the period of his human life here on earth. So the day and the night then in verse 4 are referring to this period of time in which Jesus is physically in this world. He is physically on earth. 
The day is while Jesus is here. The night is coming when Jesus is going to die. He's no longer going to be here. He's going to ascend. He's going to be gone. And so as long as he is physically here, he's saying he is the light of the world. So what he is telling his disciples in this verse is that this miracle that he is about to perform is a sign, a picture, an illustration of everything that he had been teaching up to this point as he is the light of the world. All that he's been saying from chapters 8, 7, and 8 are now going to be a living illustration in chapter 9. And we see the same idea. Jesus isn't the first time or the only time, I should say, that Jesus does this in his ministry. It is similar to what he does, for example, when he heals the paralytic lowered through the roof in Luke chapter 5. Now that man is lowered through the roof by his friends to be healed by Jesus. Jesus looks at him. They're expecting him to heal him. The first thing Jesus says is, man, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders who hear this, they become angry with Christ, and they think in their own hearts and minds, how could Jesus say this? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he says to them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And we know. He gets up, he rises, he picks up his bed, and he goes home. And in that miracle in Luke 5, Jesus is telling those Pharisees, the entire crowd, everyone who's listening, that the physical sign that he has performed is evidence of what he's just said. We all know the answer to the question, what's easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's nothing physically you can do to say to just prove it. It's harder to say rise, pick up your bed, and walk, because either the person is going to get up or they're not. And so he proves that what he says is true. Here's the sign of who I am, what I'm saying is true. I'm going to tell this man to get up and walk, and that's what he's going to do, and that's exactly what happens. And our narrative this morning is the same. Jesus, if we think Jesus has been building up to this, he's been telling his disciples, he's been telling the crowds that only he can set someone free from sin. Only he can open someone's spiritually blind eyes. He is the only one who can do that because he is the light of the world. So with this miracle, Jesus makes it abundantly clear then he is the only one who can do this. Jesus, as the light of the world, is the only source of true life. The only one that can produce in a person rivers of living water. The only one who can free people from slavery to sin. The only one who can change our lineage from that of Satan to that of God. If your eyes are opened by Jesus, if your eyes are not opened by Jesus, you're still blind. Jesus made clear, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And with this miracle, he is demonstrating through the physical healing of a blind person, we're going to see as our narrative works itself out, that it is a picture, an illustration for spiritually blind eyes being opened. But not only does Jesus' light bring sight to the blind, Jesus' light shines brightly through the blind. As Jesus stated in verse 4, he says, Night is coming when no one can work. So there's a, 
There's a time coming, and we know this. We know this with Jesus, the light of the world, will no longer physically be in the world. So the question is, what happens when the light of the world is no longer physically here? What happens to the light of Christ? How will his light shine in the world if he is not physically here? This narrative begs the question at the end of verse 7. And it brings us to verses 8, 34, 8 through 34. And what is fascinating is that verses 8 through 34 are the bulk of this narrative. And in the bulk of this narrative, guess what? Jesus is not physically there in the narrative. During this, these verses, which are the majority of it, He's nowhere to be seen. He has he just miraculously opened this blind man's eyes, but he does it without physically being with him. He sends him away. And then when his eyes are open and he can see, Jesus isn't there. And Jesus doesn't show up again until verse 35. So what's going to happen? What, what is this formerly blind man going to do? What is he going to say? And what we're going to see is that once Jesus, the light of the world, brings sight to the blind, then he shines brightly through the blind. And then we're going to see that, first of all, to his neighbors. We see that to his neighbors in verses 8 through 12. So I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went, and I washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. Immediately we see the response of this formerly blind man to his neighbors. These are people who would have seen him grown up, passed by him regularly, known him from birth that he was blind. And now they can obviously see that he is healed. Now, could you imagine if this happened today? Somebody that you knew from childhood that had been born blind, they were now an adult, and suddenly they can see. And the responses we see from them are the same kind of responses that we would have as well today. Just like them, we'd have a hard time believing it had actually taken place. We would question, is this really the same person? Maybe it just kind of looks like him. We would doubt. Eh, it can't be. There's no way. However, this man keeps on insisting that it is him. He had born blind, and now he could see. So naturally, we want to know, how did this happen? Who did it? So he tells them, Jesus, this man, Jesus. He put mud on my eyes. He tells me to go wash. I did it, and now I'm healed. But he doesn't know where he is. Because when his eyes were open, Jesus wasn't standing there anymore. All he knows is that Jesus opened his eyes and now he can see. And so, not only do we see this with the neighbors, now we transition in the narrative to the Pharisees. So after the neighbors talk with him, they're not sure what to think. So they take him to the Pharisees. Now to be clear, don't read this as something negative, as if the neighbors are trying to get him in trouble with the religious leaders. As you can imagine, something miraculous, something spiritual has happened that they don't understand. So what do they do naturally? They go to their religious authorities and say, hey, help us. Like, they want to understand what's happened. What, what do the religious leaders have to say about this? 
So they take him to the Pharisees. And so we see the first interaction of this man with the Pharisees in verses 13 through 17. We're going to read that in verses 13 through 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So as the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, he said to them, you put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now, this is initially similar to the initial response of the neighbors. They question what happened. He tells them the facts, just as he did with the neighbors. That's when we find out in verse 14 that this actually occurred on the Sabbath. Now, as discussed earlier, the fact that it occurred on the Sabbath is hard for these religious leaders to process. On the one hand, it's a miracle that cannot be denied. As mentioned before, pointing to the validity of Jesus' claims. But according to their traditions, their man-made rules, he had violated what they considered to be work on the Sabbath, which made it sin in their eyes. And so at this moment, at least at this point in the narrative, there's some measure of division among them. They don't all completely agree. Some say he must be a sinner because it happened on the Sabbath. Some wonder how could he be a sinner and still perform this kind of sign. So they turn to the blind and say, well, what do you think? What do you say of him? He looks at the facts and says, you know what, he doesn't know everything, but he must be sent from God, which is what a prophet is. He said he must be a prophet. How else could he do these things unless he was a prophet? Well, this group of Pharisees, they still think something fishy might be going on here. So what do they do? They don't completely trust this man, and so they want to verify his story, so they bring in his parents. And we see his parents' interaction in verses 18 through 23. It says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone sh should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So they asked his parents, is this your son? Was he actually born blind? If he was actually born blind, how does he now see? And so they confirm, yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. Obviously, he could now see, but they were afraid of these religious leaders. They were afraid that the religious leaders, these Pharisees, might kick them out of the synagogue. So they don't answer how he now sees. Listen, they must have known, right? They've heard, they've been there, the, what the crowds are saying. They must have known at least that he was claiming that Jesus had healed him. But they don't want to admit that because these leaders in this local synagogue had already determined that if anyone would claim that Jesus is Christ, they'd be kicked out. And what that means is that they'd be removed from the fellowship of the Jewish community, and they don't want to deal with that, so they hide. They don't stand up for or protect their son. They leave him to himself and say, basically, he's an adult, he's old enough, he can answer for himself. Well, these Pharisees then, okay, 
they bring the blind man back, or the formerly blind man back. And we have a second interaction between this man and the Pharisees in verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been born, who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and would you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I always laugh at that part too. I love the sarcasm there. But they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why isn't that an amazing thing? You don't know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Well, whatever division was there the first time this, for, this man came in before the Pharisees, we don't see it any longer in this second interaction. Now, when they ask him, give glory to God, they say, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. Now, to be clear, that translation doesn't quite get the sense of it to us. Like, we could read that on a first reading and mistakenly think they're asking him to praise God for the healing that has occurred. However, the NIV happens to get a little closer when they translate it, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. What they're really doing here is they're accusing him of sinning by withholding some truth and they're commanding him to stop lying, speak the truth about Jesus. We know that Jesus is a sinner. Stop lying about what happens. And he leaves the theological question of Jesus' identity to the Pharisees, but he states once again what he knows to be true. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, he says, one thing I do know. That though I was blind, now I see. I feel like we have to stop here for just a moment. Because everyone here who is saved can say the same thing. We can say about Christ, though I was blind, now I see. And what a glorious truth for God's children this morning. Though we were once blind, we can now see. Just like this blind man, we were blind to the truth of God. We were blind to the truth of Christ. Once we could not see, truly see and understand the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus. We couldn't see that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't see that we needed a savior. We couldn't see that we were destined to an eternity apart from God and that we needed someone to desperately needed someone to come and open our spiritually blind eyes. And then Jesus, the light of the world, came bursting into our lives in a moment, opened our spiritually dead eyes, allowed us to see the truth of who he is and what he has done. Though we were blind, now we see. Was that how 
Is that how we see how these Pharisees respond in the moment? Not at all. All we see in the moment with the Pharisees is their hardness of heart, their depth of depravity. How do they respond to this glorious truth? They scorn this man. They revile him. They mock him for what he says about Jesus. They attack him personally, verbally, and they kick him out of the synagogue. They remove him, this man who had already gone through so much in his life. They remove him from the center of fellowship and worship in the Jewish community. And then, just so that we can be clear about this second interaction, this second time before the Pharisees, when they mock him at the end, they'd actually already made up their minds before they started talking to him. What they reveal through their angry outburst in verse 34, they say, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? Is that they actually did believe, by the time we get here, they actually did believe that he was born blind and that Jesus did heal him. By making that statement, you were born in utter sin, they were affirming the facts of what happened. They were admitting that he had been born blind. We had looked at before in a previous sermon that they believed that someone, even someone born blind, that somehow either them or their parents sinned in order for them to be born blind. So if they believed that he was born in utter sin, they believed that he had been born blind. And if they had believed he'd been born blind, they can see with their own eyes in front of them that he can now see which means someone had to heal him. So in that moment, they actually exposed the truth of their own hearts. That even though there is physical evidence before their very eyes that they could not deny, they still hold to the truth, to their belief that Jesus is a sinner who did not come from God. In that moment, as their hearts are revealed and exposed to the light of the world, their spiritually blind eyes are not opened, but their spiritual blindness is revealed. The extent of their lostness and their hopelessness apart from Christ. So, not only does Jesus' light bring sight to the blind and shine brightly through the blind, Jesus' light actually reveals the hearts of the blind. And in this exchange between the Pharisees and this man, there are two biblical truths that are exposed, that are affirmed throughout the rest of Scripture. One is that those whose spiritually dead eyes have been opened by the light of the world will shine the light of Christ to those around them. Will shine the light of Christ to those around them. This is the plan. Listen, Jesus may be physically absent from verses 8 through 34, but the point is he is still the center of the narrative. When we first read it, it would seem they're all about this blind man and his interaction with the Pharisees. But the truth is they're about Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world who shines brightly through this formerly blind man. That is the point. That is what is being communicated here. It's all about Jesus. 
And although we know that by the end of the gospel accounts, by the end of Jesus' time physically here on earth, he ascends into heaven, that does not mean that his light no longer shines in this world. That does not mean that now he, that he is now absent from the world he created. No, by the contrary, his light now shines brightly through each and every one of his children. Every one. Just like this new believer in our narrative. Now that is for every believer, every child of God here this morning, starting next week, we are going to be celebrating Jesus, the light of the world, physically coming into the world he created. We're going to enter this season, this Advent season. And our narrative this morning is telling us is that although that truth of Jesus coming and being born in this world as a man, that although that truth is astounding, it is glorious, it is marvelous, we should celebrate it every year, we should be humbled by it and praise God for it. It actually doesn't end with the babe in the manger or the Messiah on the cross. If you're a child of God here this morning, if your spiritually blind eyes have been opened by the light of the world, then it continues in you and in me. As God's children, we are conduits for the light of the world to, to continue to shine in the world. This is what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. He says, and this should make, hopefully, a lot more sense now, says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what light is this? This is the light of the world on the inside of you, shining out of you to the world. Well, that's one truth, an important truth for us to see this morning. Another is that the light of the world, when, when the light of the world comes, not only does it bring sight to some and then shine through those, it also exposes the depth of spiritual blindness of those who reject him. Not only does the light of the world open spiritually blind eyes, but he also exposes the depth of spiritual blindness. And in this exchange, not only do we see the glorious light of the world, the light of Christ shining out of this man who has been healed, we also see the exposing of the Pharisees' hearts. And as this man who has been healed, as he continues to hold fast to what he knows to be true about Jesus, the Pharisees continue to grow in their stubbornness, in the rebellion, in the rejection of Christ, in their anger, and it escalates to the point where they verbally assault him and kick him out. And this is what happens when Jesus, the light of the world, comes. When the light of the world comes, the film of men's heart are exposed to the light. And what is developed is either sight or blindness. 
Now, although Jesus, as we said, he, he wasn't physically present in the narrative in verses 8 through 34, we do see him show up again at the end in verses 35 through 41. So we're going to read that passage now. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now Jesus hears, he hears that this man that he has healed has been cast out. And what does Jesus do? He goes to him. Our loving Savior went to his child. And what does he do after this man? He grew up a difficult life. Now he's experienced more suffering. He's gone through an intense trial. So what does Christ do? He reveals more of himself to him, which is the most loving thing that he could do. It's actually the most loving thing that Jesus can do for any of us. Why is that the case? Because there is only one thing that remains the same no matter what happens in life. No matter life circumstances, there is one thing that we can always trust to never change. And that's the character of God. Though the world around us, though our lives fall apart, God never He never changes. He is always the same. We must cling to, run to, remind our hearts of time and time again of the character of God. And so in this moment, that's what Jesus does. He lovingly reveals himself as the Son of Man, as the Messiah to this man. And what does this man do after going through all this? What is his response? He falls down and he worships Jesus. This is the proper response to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. To fall before our Savior and to worship him. And then Jesus summarizes the point of the entire chapter. What we've been saying, he says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And that's precisely, right? He's summing up what this narrative has been showing. When Jesus, the light of the world, comes into the world, he opens the eyes of some, reveals the blindness of others. And so there's Pharisees that are around and they hear him and they want to know, hey, are you talking about us? Are we blind? To sum up what Jesus says to them, he looks at them and says, yes, you are blind. That's what he says. One commentary I read, I think it helpfully summed it up this way. He said, Jesus' coming represents judgment. For people divide according to the way they react to that coming. The coming of the light shows who are spiritually blind and thus judges them. Judgment is not the purpose of the coming of the light, but it is an inevitable consequence. In this passage, the light is worked out in terms of sight and blindness. And here we get the other half. The result of Jesus' coming is that blind people see. Some blind people see. Some are judged. 
and all according to how they respond to the light of the world. Now, this reaction that we see is not only at that time, but it's the same reaction today to Christ. When people are exposed to Jesus, to the light of the world, either their spiritually blind eyes will be opened or they will be hardened in their spiritual blindness. These are the only two possible responses. These are the only responses there have ever been and the only responses there will ever be. What's great is we can see this summary one group at a time as we've looked at it. First, let's look at this blind man and just see how it progresses within him in this narrative. Notice also how he progresses in his understanding of Christ. So Jesus opens his, physically opens his blind eyes, and we know that he also saves him in that moment, a picture of spiritually his blind eyes are opened. And he passed from thinking of Jesus as the man they called Jesus. That's the first way he references him in verse 11. Then when asked the first time by the Pharisees, he says he's a prophet. Later, he says Jesus is one who is from God. And then finally, at the end of our narrative, he recognized, comes to believe in him as the son of man, the Messiah, and he worships him as God. This man whose spiritually blind eyes have been opened, has an increasing awareness of Jesus and remains faithful to him in the face of open hostility, of opposition from religious leaders who could have such an impact on his life. And by contrast, the Pharisees, they start with the view that Jesus is not from God. They question the miracle. They speak of Jesus as a sinner. They're shown to be ignorant, and then the final proclamation they pronounce that, and finally are pronounced as blind and sinners by Jesus himself. Right? Jesus, sorry, Jesus pronounces them as being blind and as being sinners, as we saw in verse 41. So both groups, to be clear, both groups have been exposed to Jesus, the light of the world. And what was developed, just like the film from a camera, was either life or death, with either sight or blindness. I would be amiss this morning at this moment if I didn't call you to Christ. If you are here this morning to hear me, if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I implore you to see your true spiritual condition apart from him. See your hopelessness and your helplessness apart from Jesus. He is the only one. If anything, if I get anything out of this narrative, is that Jesus is the only one who can open spiritually blind eyes. He is the only one who can save. See your sin that separates you from God. Repent of your sin and put your, your trust in Christ alone. Do not be like these Pharisees in this narrative this morning. But for those of us who eyes have been opened by Jesus, I'm going to leave us with two things. Just two things. One, grow in your understanding of Jesus, of his character, of who he is. Grow in your understanding of Jesus. And we see that happen with this blind man in our narrative as he grows in his awareness of Christ. So in other words, come to know Jesus more. 
We should spend our entire lives as Christians growing in our understanding of Christ. To be clear, be crystal clear, you and I, we never arrive, in case you were wondering, we never arrive on this side of glory. We never start learning more about Jesus. We, are ne- we never stop being able to comprehend something new about our Savior, something deeper about Christ. We have never read the Bible so many times that we fully get him, we fully understand him, we fully comprehend him. We, I, need to stop thinking that just because I've read the Gospels, that means that I know that there is everything, I understand everything there is to know about Jesus. It isn't true. I don't care if you're in your 80s this morning and you've been a Christian for many decades over again, you never have had the deepest relationship that you can with Jesus, the most intimate relationship that you can. We can always, always grow in him, always until the moment that we get to go be with him. So never stop growing in your understanding of Jesus. But secondarily, along with that, remain a constant witness before others. Remain a constant witness before others. I want to see, is this fascinating in this passage, even as an infant in the faith? You know, when he starts off, what does he know? He knows Jesus healed him. That's what he knows, right? Jesus healed him. And with that knowledge, he remains consistent in his witness about Jesus to others, to his neighbors, to his parents, to these hostile religious leaders. He knows that though he was blind, now he sees because of Jesus. However, there's one aspect of us that I want us to see that I think will be helpful. We oftentimes, myself included, we make the excuse for our lack of witness that we don't know what we're going to say We don't know the Bible well enough. We don't know Jesus well enough. And this man, he doesn't just remain consistent in his witness about Jesus. He remains consistent where he is in his understanding of Jesus. Listen, when when God, when Jesus first saves him, he doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. Realize at the end, he comes to a full awareness that Jesus is the son of man. All he knows is, is that Jesus must have been sent from God in order to be able to do the things that he has done. And so what does he do? That's what he says. And each step along the way, as he comes to a greater understanding of Christ, that is what he shares with people. And guess what? That is okay. I'm going to guess that every person in here, as we were reading this this morning, you didn't look at this narrative as I was reading through it, and you didn't get irritated Right after, the heal, right after he's healed and saying, why didn't he clearly tell his neighbors that Jesus was the Messiah? Or we don't get upset with this man when, when the Pharisees ask him, what do you have to say about Jesus? He doesn't say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. What do we do? We read this and we marvel that Jesus could shine so brightly through him with the limited knowledge that he had. We were amazed at how brightly the light of Jesus shines in and through this man. So to be clear, if Jesus can shine brightly through him, who does not have a perfect understanding of Jesus, 
then he can shine brightly through you and through me. You and I, we have no excuse. All our weak excuses are stripped away. God can use you. He can use me right where we are. Wherever we are in our walk with him, whatever understanding that we have at this point in our walk with Christ, he can shine brightly through you and through me to those around us. He can shine brightly to your family, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, employees, whoever else that God brings into your life. Just let the light of Christ shine through you to those around you and trust God to use it. Guess what? You and I, we, didn't, we don't save anybody. It's all God anyway. So why would we stop the light of Christ from shining out of us to those around us? Just because we don't think that we can say it the right way, say it perfectly, that's not what God wants. All he wants is our faithfulness. So let us be faithful to do that. So continue to grow in your understanding of Christ And as you grow in your understanding of Christ, just let Christ shine through you with where you are in your walk with him. Jesus is the light that brings sight. So let the light of Jesus shine brightly through you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father.